Welcome to this episode of Executive Insights. I'm your host, J.D. Miller. We recently wrapped up our CIO and CISO flagship summits in Arizona, a great two days of content and community. From speakers like esteemed Frank Abagnale to Dr. Zero Trust, Dr. Chase Cunningham, we had great presentations across the board. For one of those sessions, I got to sit for a fireside discussion with Scott Miller, CISO at Mr. Cooper. Mr. Cooper is the United States' largest non-bank mortgage servicer and a leading mortgage lender. I talked with Scott for a podcast quite a while ago, but it was great to connect again for a session titled Next Generation Security for CISOs, skipping the buzzword bingo. When we return, that session with Scott recorded live on stage at our flagship summit. So um, next gen security, um, let's, let's first look at what we would consider traditional security, right? Um, in, in every company, there are requirements that we all have, compliance requirements that are out there, um, standards that are built out there. And all of those standards say, make sure that you have patch management. And they say, make sure you have vulnerability management and not understanding that these are very closely tied together, right? You can't have vulnerability management without patch management and doing different things in order to reconfigure your environment. They also say things like, make sure you have penetration testing going on, annualized, right? Whoop-de-doo. So you have a point in time snapshot at looking how poorly configured one particular sliver of your environment is, whatever that target's going to be, that you're going to use for that customer. Um, they also make sure, you know, they say make sure that you're, you have a standard framework in place that you're using to govern your environment. Again, these frameworks that were created, nothing wrong with them, and they're great for guidance, but your entire program cannot always be based on managing toward a framework and instead should be based on whatever risks you have in your environment. And that's very much going to be associated with your particular industry. So when we look at the, the old style of security, it means to look at everything that has been required based on frameworks and compliance requirements and you know, things that maybe were contractually bound. And if you're looking at next generation security, you have to look beyond that. You have to look at what you can do from an automation perspective. You have to look at what you can do to have uh, continuous monitoring of your environment. You have to look at what you can do to upskill the type of personnel that you're hiring into your environment. Not looking for the traditional um, seller dweller who studies cold all, code all day uh, in the corner, or maybe you know the traditional security engineer that is product aware, but is not necessarily aware of how to interact with people, right? So when you're looking at the old and traditional stodgy style of what most would consider security and what needs to be considered the updated and renewed sense of what it means to secure an environment, you have to really think toward what's the future and how am I going to allow my environment to evolve toward that very quickly and fluidly. So where are we failing today when it comes to next-gen security? Um, We're failing by really focusing on, um, again, just the requirements, minimum requirements. Um, An example of this would be if someone says, go ahead and make sure that you no longer have um, an antiquated environment, uh, antiquated operating system in your environment, Windows 2008, right? Well, many of us still have Windows 2008 running in the environment. 
make sure you don't have Windows 2012 running in your environment because that's also going to be sunsetted and end of life. Um, and many of us still have that, right? Those are all well and good. But if that's your only focus, then you are focused on trying to check the box on something while you may have other risks in your environment. That Windows 2008 environment may be very secluded and isolated. You may have five or six of those and you end up spending 50% of your resources on trying to make sure that you get that taken care of and you have much higher risks in your environment that need to be taken care of. So you really have to take a risk-based approach to securing your environment and not a compliance checkbox-based approach. You and I had the opportunity to talk a few days ago and, and talk to me a little bit about, are we costing ourselves money by basing budgetary ask, and we're all in budgetary season, I swear, 12 months out of the year, right? Are we costing ourselves money by uh, basing our budgetary asks on third-party exams? Uh, yeah, and it, and it can get kind of painful, right? So there are, I, I don't know that there are any companies who do not have some level of a third-party exam, whether it's state, federal, um, regular contractual base, your regular business partners that are connecting with you. All of us have exams that we're going to have to go through. But we really do have to consider when we have these exams that are coming through, how do we support what those exams are asking for? What's the best way that we can do that? Now, some of us use Archer. Um, and we pull our policies and standards out of Archer. Um, some have used Metric Stream. Some use Word documents and PDFs in a controlled environment. If you've been in, in pharma, you have uh, controlled document repositories or you're going to have to store your information in there. And those are all well and good. But is that the best way to answer those questions? Is, are you really getting to the heart of what those people are asking for? So instead of flooding the third party that is asking you for documentation with a bunch of documents, have a conversation with them. Say, what is it that you're really looking for? What are you really trying to get at? Do you just want to check the box? Because if you do, sure, here's a bunch of documents. You're going to drown in them. But if you really want to understand what's going on from a security perspective from within my company, let's do this. Let's set up 30 minutes. Let me run through my entire program for you. Give you an understanding of what my environment looks <coughs> like, how we protect our client data so that you have a full story as opposed to, again, just looking at check the box, check the box, answer this question, answer that question. And then oftentimes you'll have a, a person on the other side, that third party, who doesn't actually understand what they're asking about, but they're going to ask that question anyway because they're required to ask that question. Get to the heart of what they're looking for. Get to the meat of what they're looking for. Give them an understanding of what your environment's like. If that means set up some type of standard presentation material so that you can provide them with that, great. Have that conversation, but try to get there. I asked everybody to raise your hand if you're fully staffed. You know, there's a lack of talent. How much of it is a gap today? A gap. I, I, I'm going to go back to something I mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, there is a gap in talent because we keep going to the same watering holes. We don't have to we keep looking for the traditional security engineer, the traditional security architect, um, the traditional security administrator or operator. We all came from somewhere, right? We didn't just drop into this, this position of being the head of a security environment out of the blue. We worked toward it. 
So we have to give those opportunities to others who also want to work toward that. But we also need to start looking at different watering holes, right? Look at diversity. Now, when we talk about diversity, be intentional. Look for females in your security environment to help give perspective that you may not have had otherwise. Look for neurodiversity when we talk about diversity. Don't just say diversity means female, it means black, it means Hispanic. Look for neurodiversity. Look for those who have autism and give them an opportunity in your environment. Not everyone needs to be customer facing and interacting the same way that you are. So look for that different type of diversity, bring people from different backgrounds into your environment and you will have a better environment, a better family, a better you know, operating standard for your overall company. Look for that diversity and you won't find that you are so lacking in talent pool. You're just lacking because we're still all trying to grab for that same big fish. So we're, long, we're wrong just looking at security people because you know, they, they don't grow on trees. We are. We, we absolutely are. Uh, I can tell you right now that some of the best people in my organization uh, did not actually come from security. They just have a security mindset. Okay. They, I, one of my, my top people, he was a top guy in my last company. And when I came to this company, he was looking for an opportunity to leave his old company and said, hey, you always told me if you, if you ever have an opportunity, let me know. I said, opportunity has arrived. And so I didn't just go out and hire him. I let my leaders go and interview this person. And they said, this guy is insanely great. How do we go ahead and, and bring him on? I said, go ahead and make him an offer. It's not going to be about the money for him. We pulled him in. His core background was application development. It absolutely had nothing to do with security. But he had the security mindset. You can teach the security mindset. It is a teachable skill right? I'd love to say that we're special, but we're only a little bit special. Some of us are a little more special than others, but <laughs> we're only a little bit special, okay? This is teachable. Security is teachable. Behavior is a little bit different. Character is even different than that. So we have people that we can go after, and we should be looking for different types of people because they are out there and giving those people opportunities to learn and then become great security experts. So instead of outward looking, look to upskill, look to reskill, one thing we didn't hit is outsource. You know, a lot of us have to look at, at outsourcing um, because the talent's not there, the, the speed to upskill isn't there as well. Talk to me about that balance. I think there's a time and a place for, for outsourcing, and I'm not against outsourcing, but um, I, I don't believe that you should ever 100% outsource um, program level uh, institutions of your security environment. So, for example, let's say that you were going to uh, outsource your managed security services for 24-7, uh, 365 monitoring of your environment. Great, no problem. But make sure that you have a lead or two within your group that understand everything that allows you to have an exit strategy. Right? You don't want to be so tied into this one company that they decide that they want to charge you more money or they have, you know, they're, they're not meeting the SLAs for you, but you're now stuck 
because you don't have any internal expertise. So if you're going to outsource anything, sure, go ahead and outsource, but make sure that you have someone internal so that you can have an exit, but also so that you can get someone else internally an opportunity to learn what skills the outsource companies are doing. And then have leadership opportunities, right? Leading that external effort by being an internal leader and being the intermediary, but also being the subject matter expert so that you have a go-to person. So let's take a step back. We got, we, we got, we got our staff in. Fantastic. Good job. So how do we change the culture in our organization to be a security culture? So it starts from the inside. Um, you have to hire into your organization very carefully. And again, I'll, I'll say very intentionally. Um, we have a hiring philosophy in, in my particular group. I've used this hiring philosophy for the past Same, we're going on about 15 plus years now, and it seems to work quite well. Uh, And it's a 10-20-70 split. So someone's going to have to probably bleep this at some point, but it's going to be what it's going to be, right? 10% of that hiring is what your capabilities had been in the past, right? I'm looking at your resume. It says that you can do TCPIP and you can do NetPUI and you can do... IPS, SPX, right? I'm going way back there on network. (laughs) right? Been doing this for a long time, right? Great. You've got all this background and all the skills and it shows that you have a strong foundation and then you've risen through the ranks. Awesome. That's 10%. Great. 20% is what are you capable of? Okay. What have you shown where you are upskilling on your own? Are you learning about cloud technology? Are you learning about uh, cloud security posture management? Are you learning about asset management? Are you learning about cloud workload protection? Are you learning about um, uh, BAS, breach attack simulation? Are you learning about SOARS? Are you working on orchestration, right? Great. If you are starting to do your upskilling and you can see that, that should show up in that 20%. Great. So now you're at 30%. That last 70%, are you a dick? Because if you are and no one wants to work with you, you are utterly useless to every organization. You are only useful as long as people want to work with you. So you have to be looking for those behaviors. Will they work with you? And if they don't, if you're hiring that person who, hey, this person's a rock star, what makes them a rock star? Well, they know all of these things, great. Does anyone want to actually interact with them? Are they teaching anyone else? Do people go to them? No, but it's okay. Well, guess what? You've, you've made a big mistake, right? If you're going to do that, outsource. Pick that skill up, have them do something for you, have a lead internally that can act as your liaison, and then when you're done with that specific skill, dump it, because you don't want that person as part of your organization. You need to hire people in your organization. They're going to make people want to come to your organization, not people who are looking at you as the police. No one ever wants to police when they're speeding, right? That's when you want them to stay away from you. But you look for them when you're in trouble. Well, you want people to look for you not just because you're in trouble, but because they're looking for ways to enhance their business. They're looking for you to be solutions providers. That's what you're looking to create within your organization. That's the mindset that you're looking to hire from a behavioral perspective. For building a security culture, as we asked earlier, how many of you are hybrid or remote, how difficult is it to build that security culture in that environment when you're not seeing the person every day, you're not pulling them aside, you're not pulling the group together, 
into a conference room. Talk to me about the challenge and how to overcome that challenge of building a security culture in a hybrid world. Yep. So the primary way that we ever want to be interacting with anyone is face-to-face, handshake, seeing the person, looking at their eyes. Because when you listen, you're not only listening by hearing, you're listening with your eyes. You're listening with all of the senses. Okay? You've got to make that intentional if it's possible. But we all just went through COVID. Many of us, most of us, were able to work 100% at home for the first six to nine months. And then after that, hybrid work became a little bit more normal, and some companies were really forcing employees to go back in, and that's all well and good, right? Um, For the most part, while you were working at home, you should have 100% required your team to be on screen. And if you didn't, you missed an incredible opportunity to force a behavior that should already be behavior in your organization. There's not one laptop that's being made that does not have a built-in webcam. Granted, many people are using some level of a virtualized environment and the webcams don't work so well. But find a way to get them a $30 webcam. You know, you can order them on Amazon and send it to them. I've sent microphones to my team members. I'll buy them and send them. I don't care. Because to me, it's worth giving them a really great microphone so that we can hear their full voice and so that they can have interaction and so that they're not clipping so that we can have a great conversation. So try to be on screen, try to be fully engaged and make that part of your standard operating procedure for your entire organization. If you can't do that, phone calls, the next thing that you want to do, at least have interaction with your voice. And if you can't do that and you have to drop it back down to email, I'd almost recommend a text before I'd recommend an email. Because texting, at least, will, re- will require the people to pay attention, listen, maybe quick interaction, right? Know that there's an expectation that you're going to be going back and forth. And if you have to do it via email, you do what you have to do. How do you put the toothpaste back in the, in the tube on that? You, you, you didn't require your team, half your team's on camera, half, half of them aren't. How do you go back and say, okay, guys, gals, Now you got to do it. Yeah, it's a great question, right? Um, So how do you transition people? Um, If you hadn't taken advantage of this great opportunity that was, you know, catastrophic for the world, um, then working on the transition means, again, making it intentional where you start rewarding the behavior, right? There's carrot and stick. You can, you can lay the stick out there and say, well, you know, if you're not on screen, that's a demerit or whatever you want to call it in your organization. But the carrot is, hey, you know what? On Friday, we're going to have game day. And everyone who's on screen for game day has the opportunity to win a $25 Amazon gift card. People will do things for Amazon gift cards. People will do things for food, right? They, it, it's crazy because I can say to someone, listen, there'll be a $500 bonus at the end of the year if you're on screen every single day. And they're like, $500 bonus? I'm not going to do anything for a $500 bonus. (laughs) But it all changes when you say, look, Amazon gift cards, we're going to be giving them away, right? Or here's a $25 uh, Applebee's card or, you know, salt grass or whatever it is that you want, right? 
gamify it. Turn it into something that makes people want to be on screen. Give them a reason to be on screen. Make it fun for them. Make it interactive for them. Make it so that you're on screen and you're setting the example, right? I'm sure that many of you experienced during COVID time period, uh, today we're going to do pajama day. And today we're going to do a dress-up day. And today we're going to bring our children to work. And then the next day it's going to be your fur babies, right? All of those things happened during COVID for a lot of people. And some participated and some didn't participate. But you don't have to let that go right now. You can still find unique ways to transition people back to being on screen at least once every couple of weeks if you don't already have something longstanding. Isn't that painful as a leader and individuals who've led our organizations for a long time to, to have to do that, to have to say, I'm going to give you an Amazon gift card to do your job, to, to be there and be present and, and be part of a team? It, 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 I would consider it painful. However, it's a harsh reality. Um, there are people that I interact with on a regular basis that are not on screen, and it is what it is, right? It wasn't a, a, an operating paradigm for their particular organization. In my organization, since the, the day I walked in, we were all going to be on screen. Now, when I came into my organization in 2018 at Mr. Cooper, we had just one remote employee. And so when we had weekly huddle meetings, the remote employee would dial in, we'd hear him on a conference call, and people would just, from their desks, do whatever they were doing. Within a couple of weeks of me being there, the first thing I did was say, okay, well, what is the standard technology that we're using is Skype at the time. So we pulled up Skype, Skype for Business, and um, had him on screen, and I put his face on a laptop and put him at the end of the hallway, and then we all huddled around that laptop. Now, it seems like it's not scalable, right? But at the time, the organization only had about, uh, I think, 13 or so local employees. We had others that were over in India. Um, and then this one individual who was in, it might have been Nebraska or Utah. He moved. Um, I think it was Nebraska. But he at least now had a presence. People knew who he was. They saw his face. He saw other people's faces. He knew that he had people who were paying attention to him, and we were now paying attention to him and trying to create a culture of inclusion. That was the whole point. And if you understand what inclusivity means, then you'll start to understand the power of it, and you'll start to move toward it. As we look at security culture, how do we educate our organizations today outside of our own staff that's different today? How can we do better? Uh, you know, if I had the perfect answer to that, I'd have my <laughs> own company. Um, I, you know, <laughs> there, there are a couple of ways that you can do better by making sure that you have executive support by giving them reports about their own team. Nothing is better than something that hits you locally. So when you have team members that are not doing their training, create reports, provide them to executive management and say, we're just going to do a quick readout. Here's who has failed the phishing campaigns. Here's who has taken the training. Here's how your group is doing. Now, let's compare you to your peers. And I will tell you right now, 
no one ever likes to be compared in public to their peers because there's an embarrassment level that they don't want to uh, take on. So that, you know, that's, to me, one of the ways that you can do it. You can start to not try to embarrass them, but at least explain to them, we're going to have to take a look at what's going on from a general security perspective, and we're going to have to start doing this by comparing, providing you information so that you can look at how you're doing against your peers, peers outside of the industry, or sorry, peers outside of the company, and then your peers within the company. And then, in a sense, again, let's try to gamify it. See who can end up on top. Get your CEO or president or your COO to say, hey, you know what? This is not only important, but we're going to be giving away maybe a trip to the organization's leader who does the best. Now, that can be the internal part of it. And then that organizational leader can start to motivate their, own, their team by saying, hey, listen, we want to be a great place to work. How are we going to do that? We're going to kill it when it comes to making sure that we do not fall prey to phishing. We're going to start inviting someone who's a security officer from that organization into our huddle meetings, into our group meetings, so that we can become more and more educated. There are ways to do this that are not necessarily expensive, and it just takes a little bit of time and interaction and putting yourself out there. Talk to me about the balance of leveraging what's in the news, because every single day in the news, there's another organization that's been breached, another ransomware. Talk to me about balancing that with uh, avoiding a sky is falling to get the right behavior in this security culture we're seeking. So you never want to miss the opportunity to capitalize on a catastrophe. Um, We, in, in my organization, we call them celebrity vulnerabilities. So something that is out there that shows up on CNN or, or Fox or NBC or something like that, where the sky is falling, oh my gosh, this is a big deal. That means your board is going to know about it. It's going to show up in a Wall Street Journal. It's going to show up in Barron's. Your executives are going to know about it. Don't lose that opportunity. Capitalize on that opportunity. Because when it happens, you should be leveraging that to show where you have strengths in your program and where you have opportunities to enhance your program. Where you can say, hey, you know what? We can probably check the box on this And it might be defensible, but in all reality, we have a serious risk over here. And if that one hits us, we're kind of screwed, right? If Log4j comes at us, we're kind of screwed. Hey, by the way, we have SolarWinds our environment. We're kind of screwed, right? Use those opportunities to enhance your program. Looking at, uh, let's look at third party now, outside of our organization, and getting third party to... um, for us to have the visibility into third party, um, because I feel like if I asked everybody in this room, do you have the visibility you want? Nobody's going to raise their hand, right? You know, you cover what we need to ask of our staff. Talk to me about what we need to ask of those third parties we're working with. Um, You know, here's the thing about third party risk management, third party risk assessments. Um, Again, I'm going to say most of the time it's a series of questions, And we're looking to get a minimum baseline of understanding of whether or not they have a a strong enough security program to help avoid risk for your company. But what you don't know is about their third parties, which is your fourth party security. So we've all heard about fourth party security, but are you really going to go and start doing fourth party security assessments? If you've got the type of staff to help support that, 
spectacular. I, I applaud you, um, and, and I'm envious, right? Um, so we have to be choosy. We have to be intentional. We have to be surgical with where we are going to have fourth-party security assessments. But what we can do, at least, is understand where we have the highest amount of risk with the third parties that we are using. So if you have a third party where that third party has access to NPI, PII, PHI, depends on what industry you're in, um, perhaps intellectual property, if you're perhaps in a software industry or something of that nature, um, if you have third parties that have access to those specific things and they may be giving access to that which you have given or entrusted to them, make sure that there is something contractually that says, if you are going to be providing access to another third party, to that which we have given you access, you are required to disclose that to us. So here's, here's what you should consider. You trust Acme Corporation. Great. And you've done a third party assessment to Acme Corporation. Awesome. Acme Corporation is outsourcing some of their work, perhaps infrastructure work, to brick corporation. And so when the BRIC corporation is not following strong security practices and they are doing the work on behalf of Acme Corporation, you've inherently trusted BRIC corporation. So is BRIC corporation safe? Have you assessed him? Are you good? Do you feel comfortable with that? Well, you might want to determine whether or not they have access to your data, your systems, your applications. They may be managing your infrastructure in a way that you don't even know. So you have to do your due diligence in that regard. And aside from making sure that they are contractually bound to disclose that, you should also be asking about their third-party risk management program. How strong is their third-party assessment? Do they even do third-party assessments? What type of due diligence do they do? So part of it is asking the right questions and very much about what is in the contract to help protect you. You're talking about fourth party. What if we don't have the staff, the size of staff, to be able to do the due diligence, to look into those fourth party? What kind of advice do you give those organizations other than um, to pray? <laughs> <laughs> um, look for their SOC 2, type 2 assessments, if they are a company that requires that. Not every company requires a SOC 2, type 2. Um, some have SOC 1, type 2, where they have business controls and IT controls in their SOC 1 assessment. Um, some companies don't do that. Maybe they are a high trust associated, and so they have high tech requirements that are required of them. Um, if you are a pharma, it might be safe biopharma. Um, if it's the, uh, the, the electricity industry, it might be NERCSI, right? Look for whatever standards are required from a compliance requirement for that company and ask them for that standard documentation. Penetration tests, reports, I'm not saying that they don't have any value. You definitely should ask for them because at a minimum, those are table stakes. But what you really want to know in that pen test result is what are they doing from a remediation perspective? Have they actually established some level of program to support remediation? Or is it one of those things where they're checking the box and they actually have the same problem and they're repeating it over and over and over again? So you need to really start digging in to standardized documentation. Just at least review it from a cursory level. Worst case scenario, fake it till you make it, okay? Scare them into providing something to you because they know that they should be doing it 
And if you don't put it out there and require them to do it, they may just kind of sit and hang loose. So you may not have the full staff to go and do a, a true analysis of every part of that penetration test document because it's a 75-page document and there are three of you. But you probably have enough to say, let's look at the management summary of that 75-page document and then let's talk about what we should be going and focusing on. I know we only have a couple minutes left here and I want to leave time for questions, but we're, we're about three years through this COVID journey and hopefully um, ending it very, very soon. Talk to me as security leaders, what have we gotten right and what have we gotten wrong? Oh, <laughs> third party's wrong. <laughs> um, what have we gotten right? Gosh. What I think we've gotten right is adjusting to the fact that we have to rely on each other from a remote office, remote management perspective. We were somehow able to survive that. And while there was a, a great demise in the economy as a result of COVID, it wasn't because people couldn't do work from home. Instead, it was because businesses went under, um, and as a result, people didn't have jobs, and they didn't have jobs, they weren't spending money, you know, the, the whole cycle. But what we did learn to do was trust that we were able to accomplish the work that's required while we were remote. It did not require people to be butt in chair seven feet away from you, right? We all adjusted. So we've learned how to adjust. And although it happened at the worst time for the worst reasons, we've learned to do it. What, we're, what we've gotten wrong is everyone's trying to force everyone to go back into the office because even though it worked for two and a half years, we suddenly think it's not going to work anymore. I'm not saying that there isn't a value to being in the office because like I mentioned earlier, face-to-face, -face, there's nothing like it. But to force people to go back into the office for no other reason than I paid for this building. I was going to say the I've leases. Got this lease. The leases. Yep. I've got to use it. You know, I've got water and electricity all allocated, associated with this. That's not the right reason for doing it. In our company, we have uh, three reasons for going in. Collaboration, celebration, training, CCT. Those are three reasons for coming into the office. Collaboration, celebration, training. We do a collaboration, a collaborative event if we are going to be planning our strategy. And we've had a few of those recently. And when you do that, use that as an opportunity to go out and, you know, grab lunch for your team, grab dinner with your team, right? Turn that into a celebration of what you have achieved and what has been accomplished. Celebrating those minor things that everybody thinks are minor, but are actually great changes to your environment. And then lastly, training, right? You, you can train remotely. And that's all well and good, but if you're like me, you might be a little bit distracted, you know, not because of children or dogs or whatever. You've got cats, you know, climbing in your face. I'm sure people <laughs> have seen cats and, you know, <laughs> things showing up on the, on the screen, on the camera. But just because when you are working remotely, oftentimes you're multitasking. We've got Microsoft Teams popping up in your face every five minutes. And you're like, oh, yeah, let me just handle that while the person's talking, Right. You're not really multitasking when you're sitting at a desk 
or in a conference room with someone because that face-to-face interaction requires you to be paying attention. So it's kind of a a double-edged sword, but I can say that um, there are ways that we should be able to adjust and accommodate. But going back into the office just for the sake of going back into the office, bad idea. Scott, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. What a great discussion. A big thank you to Scott for our fireside chat. If you'd be interested in attending one of our upcoming summits, check out cdnmedia.com. For other episodes of CDM Media's Executive Insights or any of our family of podcasts, check out cdnmedia.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.